The Electorette is brought to you by you. Seriously, it's listeners like you who inspire me to keep going. And if you're one of Electorette's newest Patreon supporters, I'd like to sincerely thank you. Your support means everything. And it helps Electorette continue to amplify the voices of women. And if you'd like to become a new supporter of Electorette, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash electorette. There are some great bonuses there for patrons at all levels. And again, I want to thank all of my listeners so much from the bottom of my heart. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Just recently, Shakisha Clemens was in an Alabama Waffle House when an employee called the police because of a dispute over paying for plastic utensils. When the police officers arrived, they threw Shakisha Clemens to the ground, threatened to break her arm, placed their hands on her throat, and exposed her breasts, all over plastic utensils. This interaction happened only a few days before my conversation with today's guest, Angia Ritchie. Andrea Ritchie is the author of the book, Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color. We talk about all the ways in which women of color, black women, Latino women, indigenous women, immigrants, are targets of police and state violence. We also discuss the historical patterns of these interactions through the experiences of slavery and colonization. And Ritchie challenges us to think about the ways in which we interact with women of color that perpetuate these patterns. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Andrea Ritchie. Andrea Ritchie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So you, in your book, you talk a lot about your own experiences and your own experience as an activist and, you know, even with, with sexual assault. But there are two things early on in the book that really caught my attention. And the first one was um, a case that you described in 1993. It was a case of a Jamaican woman in Toronto and her interaction with the police really moved you. I think it was Audrey Smith, perhaps, right? Yes. And, you know, and I was curious as to what it was, because you, you've been an activist, right? But what it was about this case at this period in your life, like what was going on for you that this case changed your personal trajectory? I think there was a few things. One, it was around the time that the non-indictment came down in the state charges in the Rodney King case. And there was quite an uproar in the streets uh, in Toronto where I was living around the sort of non-indictment and what that said about police brutality against Black folks in the United States. There were conversations happening about police violence against Black folks in Canada and against Indigenous folks in Canada at that time. And then, and then Audrey Smith's case came to light and for one, it was just so egregious. I mean, it was literally like police officers walking up to a black woman standing on a corner at one in the morning and telling her to basically strip for them because, quote unquote, she looked like a drug dealer. So in some ways, it was really kind of the epitome of the way that the war on drugs is waged on black women, which is just this assumption that black women's bodies are sort of these vessels for drugs consumed or concealed or conveyed in some way, and that that gives police officers complete license to treat Black women's bodies, privacy, and dignity much in the same way that they did during slavery. I mean, that sort of reminded me of what might happen on an auction block if a woman was up on it and, you know, someone decided to inspect her for whatever purpose. And so it was really striking. Um, And it was also striking because you know, my mom's Jamaican, my family's Jamaican, and it just seemed like that could have happened to any number of people in my family. And and then what really struck me about it was that there was a lot of conversation about it in Toronto. 
But this wasn't the story of police violence that was kind of being told on a national level and around the world. The only story of police violence that was being told was the story of police violence and physical violence, particularly against Black men and men of color. And it seemed like this story deserved as much attention and deserved as much to drive the analysis and understanding of what policing of Black folks in North America looks like and what our response to it should be as what happened to Rodney King. So that sort of, that moment of sort of just feeling like, wait a minute, a lot more people are talking about one thing. A lot fewer of us, primarily Black women, are talking about this other thing and they're both part of the larger story. How can we shift that? Yeah. So, so the other thing that, that caught my attention from the beginning was the way you talk about yourself and your own experiences in the context of the way that you look and how your racial ambiguity plays into how you're perceived and how you're read, essentially. Right. And I'll just read about I'll just read the description um, that you wrote in the book about yourself. You said light, you're light skinned black woman with curly hair and green eyes. Right. But in the eyes of the police, that made you sexually available and unworthy of protection. I think that even with that privilege, what I was saying is that the degree of racial ambiguity that some police officers have read on to me has given them that impression. I think in combination with the circumstances in which I came across them, which was, you know, on the street, alone, um, at night, in one instance, with no other place to sleep. And so I think that combination of circumstances was read by those officers as being sexually available and unworthy of protection. I was also a young person at the time. But I immediately after that sort of point out that that's a reality that's much more stark for darker skinned women and certainly much more stark for dark skinned black women. And I think that the fact that I experienced that at all is an indication of how pervasive and deep the problem is for people with much less privilege, whether it's um, privilege of passing or privilege of features or privilege of... um, skin color. Yeah. So the reason that that stood out to me was because, I mean, I'm African-American and, you know, that that detail, I mean, there are very few people in my own life, my own circle, where I can talk in detail about the hierarchies of color in relation to how you're perceived by men and, and by victimizers. And that particularly stood out to me. So when did the idea crystallize for you in that, that there is privilege or, or not privilege for just depending on where you fall on that spectrum for women? I mean, I don't think I've ever not been aware of that privilege. Uh, growing up in a family where people looked very differently and that very much informed how people were treated by the outside world, including by police or other authority figures in terms of what respect folks were given or what deference they were expected to give or what sort of treatment or protection they were offered. And I think that certainly played out in in the research that I've done over time as well. I think that the, the ways in which interlocking oppressions play out manifest in terms of how police interactions take place. So for instance, it's no accident that former Oklahoma City police officer Daniel Holsclaw targeted specifically Black women yeah. and girls for sexual violence. Um, and it was because these sort of centuries-long stereotypes that were created to justify Black women's systemic and systematic rape uh, during slavery persist in the popular imagination and uh, led him to believe that when these women came forward, they would not be believed or that the, the... the public would be susceptible to anything he said in terms of their consent or their, if he said that they were lying or that both of those things, the public would be more likely to believe because they were black women. I think that there are similar, um, although rooted in different kind of 
theories or logics, perceptions of indigenous women as inherently sexual or promiscuous or inviolable, and that those things play out in terms of how police officers interact with indigenous women, both when they experience violence at the hands of other folks in the community, or when they experience violence at the hands of white folks coming onto reservations, or when they experience violence at the hands of the police. And so I think there are ways in which racism is structured in gendered ways that make it such that there is a a way in which Black women and women of color are perceived as both an inherent threat and folks that you can violate at will because of the way society perceives us. Yeah. So you talk about Indigenous women in your book and you talk about these three groups of women of color throughout history and, um, you know, how they endured state-sponsored sexual violence. First of all, colonial violence portrayed against Indigenous women and slavery and immigrant women. And you talk about how that kind of dictates the way that it dictates modern day interactions with women of color and the police. In what ways does it relate? There's a lot of ways. I mean, I think a lot of the ways policing is structured are duplicative of ways in which it was structured at at different times in history. So for instance, at some point there was, you know, enforcement of black codes or past laws under slavery, or there were past laws that also applied to indigenous peoples. And people had to account for their uh, whereabouts and their travels through various parts of the country and essentially, you know, have permission to travel. I think now, you know, the police engage in similar practices, albeit under different laws. Those laws have been struck down. But, you know, again, referring back to Daniel Holtzclaw, he would stop women on their way through their neighborhood and ask them where they were going and what they were doing. And then that would be the beginning of an interaction that would probably um, end as it did during slave patrols in, in a sexual assault. And we might strike down some laws like common night walker laws that used to say that, you know, a woman out at night alone without permission of a man uh, who had power over her would be presumed to be engaged in prostitution. And the reality is that today, a woman of color, particularly a trans woman of color, but also non-trans women of color who are out at night are presumed also to be engaged in prostitution, particularly in particular neighborhoods and particularly if they're dressed in a particular way, no matter what they might be doing. It was it felt important to talk about those historical patterns because they continue to repeat themselves today in terms of how laws are enforced, even as the laws themselves change and may no longer be explicitly discriminatory or um, explicitly targeting particular groups of people, laws that are neutral on their face continue to be enforced in in many of the same ways as they were. There are many stories I tell in the book um, about policing of Black women, for instance, where it's hard to tell whether the story took place in 1863, in 1963, or in 2013. It could be the same interaction. A police officer coming across a Black woman, deciding that she's too loud, that she's disorderly, that she doesn't belong in a certain place, that... um, she's behaving in a way that he finds threatening or not conforming with white notions of femininity and will police and criminalize and perhaps brutalize her um, on that basis. Or, you know, the the statistics about um, racial disparities in prostitution enforcement now and in turn-of-the-century Chicago are very similar in terms of the percentage of Black women who are arrested for or profiled for prostitution. So, that's why I told those stories. But I think the other thing that's really persistent and harder to tackle and informs maybe why these laws are enforced in the same way now as they were then is because I think that what really informs police interactions with Black women and women of color are these persistent perceptions of them that, as I said, are rooted in colonialism, slavery, and in uh, historical immigration enforcement that in the book I call controlling narratives, you know, learning from Black feminists like Patricia Hill Collins and others who developed those concepts. But they're basically stories 
stories that control the way that people understand what a Black woman or woman of color might be doing at any given moment. So a recent and painful example would be the story of DeCynthia Clements, who was a Black woman clearly in some kind of crisis in a suburb north of Chicago, who was shot by a police officer as she stumbled out of a burning car gasping for air. Right. And literally what clouded his perception of her in that moment, even though seconds before he had been talking about the need to assist her, the need to perhaps, um, if there was a problem, sort of use some non-lethal form of restraining her. In the moment where she stumbled out of the car gasping for air, he called it grunting. And she transformed in his mind into, it sounds like, an animalistic threat. No matter how much training he had received, that was what governed his perception of her in that moment and proved deadly to her when she really posed a threat to no one in that moment. Those are the parts that feel more intractable and more difficult to tackle because it's not something that obviously can be trained out um, and something that seems to suggest that we need to just reduce police interactions with Black women and women of color as much as possible because even in a situation like that where someone is desperately in need of help, they don't get it. They get a response that's rooted in these perceptions. And speaking of perceptions, I recently did an episode with Talia Gonzalez, and she took part in a Georgetown study titled Girl Interrupted, which, you know, that study explored how Black girls are perceived in educational settings. And, you know, it isn't much different from the experiences that you describe in your book. So a few from your book include the the story of the 14-year-old girl who was at a pool party and was essentially tackled to the ground while wearing her bathing suit by a police officer, or the girl who was thrown to the ground from her chair in her classroom by a school resource officer for not putting her cell phone away. And then, of course, the, the hardest one for me was the story of a five-year-old who was handcuffed for essentially having a tantrum. You know, so having greater law enforcement presence in, in schools generally is is never a good idea for kids of color, right? And secondly, the, the irony here is that, you know, this is all a response to these school shootings. But the irony is, is that the people who are responsible for the shootings, they're, they're not these girls. Right. And, and in many cases, outsiders or... or- you know, folks who might have a troubled relationship to the school. But yes, I think the study that you cited from Georgetown and that you um, spoke with one of the researchers for is the only way to explain why not only a teacher would suspend or discipline Black girls at substantially higher rates. I believe the last estimate I read was four times higher rate than white girls for similar offenses, but also is the only way you can explain that police officers would put a five-year-old who was sitting in a chair by the time they arrived in handcuffs. Um, And then persist in doing so even when the handcuffs they brought didn't fit around her wrists because they were too tiny and they had to figure out a way to put them around her upper arms. Like that's a lot of time during which a switch should flip in your head in which you're saying, actually, what what am I doing right now? As a five-year-old who lost it for a second and is now sitting quietly in a chair, what am I putting her in handcuffs for and taking her to a prosecutor to prosecute her for what? Right. <laughs> so I think the perceptions they talk about in that study, which is that attached to Black girls at very young ages, that Black girls are just inherently more responsible for their actions, are more threatening, are less in need of support and assistance. Yes. Those perceptions that are held by educators are also held by police officers, very much so, and are held by other folks in society who might then judge the situation and say, well, she shouldn't have done that, or she should have put the cell phone away, or she should have left the classroom when she was told, or she should have left the pool area in her own neighborhood when she was told. You know, that people really blame 
black women and girls uh, starting from a very young age for anything that happens to them and punish any deviation from a very kind of narrow racially gendered norm of behavior. So I think, yes, I, I had a great deal of alarm when I heard the sort of reaction once again to the most recent school shooting to put more police officers in school is just like, well, how much more racial disparities are going to be? How many more girls are going to be arrested or pushed out of their schools as a result? And also when we talk about arming teachers, I mean, who knows what would have happened to the girl who didn't put her cell phone away fast enough for the teacher's liking had that teacher been armed. Already they thought it fitting to call in an armed police officer to respond to a situation like that rather than dealing with it as a classroom management issue or or simply recognizing that the girl had complied and moving on with the lesson. It, it just, it, it's terrifying. Um, it's terrifying in terms of, of what that means for Black girls and their ability to obtain an education and be treated with dignity, respect, and honoring them as, as students and folks who are entitled to be safe in schools. You know, there's just so much to unpack here. I mean, I guess I'm reminded of a recent analysis that I read of what happened in Starbucks with the manager calling the cops on the two Black men. And I don't remember where I read this read this analysis, but, you know, essentially they say that, you know, calling the cops is a response of choice for anyone who feels threatened by the presence of someone of color, and in this case, girls, right? And cops and resource officers in schools are used as extensions of racial harassment, you know, that may already exist in these spaces. You know, they're an additional arm of reinforcement. And in the case of the student with a cell phone, for instance, you know, instead of dealing with it as a as a classroom management issue, an officer was brought in to, you know, enforce class rules. You know, we've we've come to the point where criminalization is the response to to everything, including, you know, a question about what some people might be doing in a store, right? For 30 seconds before their friend shows up, you know, and, um, or what someone who is knocking at your door looking for directions because their car broke down or they're lost. You know, I mean, I think that the response that criminalizes and perceives everyone, every black person in that kind of situation as a threat is something that is pervading every social institution, every public space, every context. It pervades when police respond to violence. It pervades ways that police who patrol school hallways behave. Um, and it's really a trend that requires us to kind of step back and be like, this isn't about individual school resource officers necessarily, although there are certainly some who are worse yeah. than others. Um, this isn't even necessarily about individual teachers. It's about the notion that the way that we produce safety in a school is to put in people who have been known to actually create situations of profound unsafety for Black girls and who have been known to respond to any perceived deviation from racialized gender norms with policing and punishment rather than any other response. Yeah. And then there's the other thought about the treatment of their bodies, right? Um, that, that video of the pool party was particularly hard for me to watch because there was no respect for the fact that this was a young girl in a, a bikini, right? Um, the lack of recognition that you're dealing with a young girl and that like there's no understanding that there may be some modesty there. None whatsoever. And I mean, black girls' bodies and appearances are policed by officers in schools as well who somehow take it upon themselves to enforce dress codes to, I mean, there was a, a videotape of um, a young woman who was arrested outside of her prom in Texas. She was Latina. She had been refused entry to the prom because supposedly she wasn't dressed appropriately. And then this resulted in police violence against her. You know, this is... This is a way in which um, Black girls' bodies are policed 
at the very same time as they're also being deeply sexualized by school resource officers and police officers generally who engage in widespread sexual harassment of young women, both in the community, on their way to and from school or wherever else they might be going in the community and in school. So there's a very sort of similar pattern of framing Black girls and girls of color as um, inherently promiscuous. And that is also one of the results of that Georgetown study and therefore preying on them and policing them also for what they wear or how they carry their bodies or what they choose to do with them. Yeah, not to stay on this topic too long, but there was a, a case over the weekend. I don't know if you've read about this yet of a woman in a Waffle House, another separate Waffle House story, not the shooting. A woman was um, there. She had a dispute with a staff there, black woman, and someone called the police and, you know, she was tackled to the ground. Her top came off. There was no disregard for helping her cover her body. Have you read about that story? I have not. And I'm I'm so sad and sorry to hear it. I just, every single time, it just reminds me again of just how little respect for the dignity and safety of Black women police officers display in any given situation. I mean, I think that that reminds me of a, a story in the book around Marlene Pinnock, who was beaten by the side of the road by a Los Angeles police officer. And similarly, you know, her skirt was riding up during this beating and he didn't care that she was exposed to the entire freeway of Los Angeles in traffic, right? And all the cars that were there, you know, they're just yeah. they're really... There is, again, it sort of comes back to me always to this question of the auction block and and the sort of lack of um, control of Black women over their own bodies and their lack of dignity uh, in Black women's bodies that society since 1619, when the first African-descended woman was dragged here in chains, um, has displayed and that that continues to be played out in police interactions. And, you know, whether we're starting from the Audrey Smith interaction, uh, going back to that and and what really... I found appalling about that was exactly that, the exposure of black women's bodies and and expectations that that's just a routine way of policing are deeply rooted in those kinds of historical degradations and ongoing degradations of black women. So there's a statistic that you cite in the book. Since 1970, the number of women in prison has increased by 14-fold, 14-fold. And the vast majority of those are women of color. So so what's changed? What's changed that led to this increase? Well, there's there's two figures um, in the book. One is that the population of women in prison, state and federal prison has increased 700% over the past four decades, but the population of women in jails has increased by twice that much, 14 times over the past four decades. And then if you look at the 10 million arrests that take place every year, a quarter of those arrests are of women. So I think what's driving all of those sort of rapid rates of criminalization, arrest, short incarceration in jail, longer incarcerations in prisons of women are a few things and that really make women the fastest growing prison population, which is not something we talk much about in conversations about mass incarceration. The war on drugs sort of declared in 1970 and really ramped up in 1980 has really contributed to rapid growth of the women's prison population in ways that are very racially disparate. At one point, black women were being incarcerated at six or seven times the rate of white women. Now, black women continue to be incarcerated at twice the rate of white women, even as sort of the way in which the war on drugs is being slightly shifted. And, you know, in part, that's because the strategy for the war on drugs was to go after um, folks sort of at the low end of the industry, users and low-level sellers, in order to get them to flip against sort of the big fish, supposedly the kingpins, right? And like any other industry, Black women and women of color are at the lower end of the industry with very little money, power, access to information or resources. Sometimes they're 
through uh, as a result of violent relationships and sometimes they're as a result of lack of other mental health or support services and communities such the only way to sort of manage trauma of violence and uh, racial discrimination in society is to is to self-medicate and the problem with the way the war on drugs has been waged is that when people have no information to trade then they end up doing those long mandatory minimum sentences because there's no way of reducing the sentence. And so that's why black women and women of color would end up doing much longer sentences, 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, than the actual people who were maybe compelling them to engage in drug sales or in, or be involved in the trade or folks who were just higher up than they were in the train because they had more power and information to share, more resources to defend the case, et cetera. And so women with very little involvement or very low level involvement or you know, primarily possession, would end up doing a lot more time than these the drug kingpins that these strategies were supposed to get. And I'm concerned about this now because, you know, the attorney general has recently announced a return to those very strategies. For a while, there had been some experimentation with maybe not pursuing the highest penalty against people depending on circumstances and whether they actually had information to share or whether their level of involvement in the trade was significant or not. And now, you know, the policy, the declared policy is to is to return to the most draconian forms of waging the war on drugs, which will mean increased incarceration for Black women and women of color. So that's one way those numbers have increased. Another has been just the increasing policing and criminalization of poverty. And uh, that includes poverty of parents, where Black women and women of color are, you know, criminalized for things that are called child abuse and neglect, but really are, are poverty. And um, right. instead of, you know, providing women with the resources they need to raise their families in the ways that they want to be raising them and to not only survive, but thrive, mothers are being criminalized for being the folks who are still experiencing the highest levels of poverty in this country. And then the other group of people in prisons are women who are being, who are there for violent offenses. And very often those are women who defended themselves against violence or being criminalized for the violence of someone else in their life um, and being, you know, uh, held accountable for, say, the violence that their abuser committed to the, against their child and their failure to protect their child when they couldn't protect themselves. And those cases are ones that really require our attention because I think that uh, currently criminal justice reform is really focused on you know, quote unquote, nonviolent drug offenses, right? And not so much on yeah. the crimes of poverty, survival, and um, self-defense that Black women and women of color are criminalized for. And so there's been some recent research that's shown that even as men's prison populations are starting to decrease thanks to criminal justice reform efforts at the state level, women's prison populations in many states continues to increase, in fact, sometimes outpacing the decrease in the men's population, or at least balancing it out, and that just shows that if we're not paying attention to the pathways of incarceration for women, then we're not going to achieve any dent in the problem and that we have to have a more complete analysis of what the problem is and how things are similar and different for Black women and women of color in terms of criminalization and mass incarceration, or we're going to wind up with incomplete solutions that end up producing the same results, but maybe with just a different gender makeup. So you recount a story in your book of a young Latinx woman who was sleeping on a train and was approached by a police officer and confronted for sleeping on the train. 
And you talk about the idea that police officers have unlimited discretion in relation to, you know, who they have contact with. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, in examples like this, is it the fact that police use their discretion to approach and harass people of color who, who aren't a threat? Or is the bigger problem that sleeping on the train is an offense in the first place, right? The idea of criminalizing poverty. Both. Obviously, sleeping on a train should not be a crime. I think we polled your listeners. The vast majority of people listening to this podcast have probably fallen asleep on some public conveyance at some point in time in their lives. And the the folks who are criminalized for that are a much smaller subgroup, and they're usually the people whose presence in public spaces is already criminalized. Um, and in her case, it was being a, a, a queer, gender nonconforming Latinx lesbian who happened to be asleep on her girlfriend's shoulder um, on a train and may or may not have not had somewhere else to sleep that night. And so I think the the fact that it's a crime to sleep on the train or to do any number of other things in public spaces, stand, sit, eat, drink, lie down, sit down, you know, be in a park after dark, make unreasonable noise, all these sort of what are known as broken windows or quality of life offenses that uh, are then discriminatorily enforced to police some people's presence in public spaces, but not everyone's, should not be crimes. And then that we should take away those tools of structural discrimination. They used to exist as vagrancy laws. They used to exist as these common nightwalker laws or cross-dressing laws. And now these broken windows laws are, are enforced in very similar ways in, uh, in terms of discrimination against black and brown people in public spaces, also against queer and gender nonconforming people in public spaces, and against women in public spaces. And then... Uh, even when it comes to things that are, you know, some folks think, you know, definitely should be crimes, whether it's, you know, physical assault or violence, again, the way in which a police officer responds and the discretion they exercise in terms of how they frame or understand the incident um, has severe consequences. So, for instance, you know, many of your listeners might have heard of Marissa Alexander, who defended herself against her abusive husband in her own home using a weapon that she had a license to carry and did not shoot him, um, but just shot into the ceiling, a warning shot to sort of say, I really mean that you need to leave now because I'm really done with this pattern of abuse. And a police officer could have arrived at that scene, said, may I see your license for that weapon, Ms. Alexander? I see everything here is in order. Is there anything I can do to help you feel safe um, in this moment? I understand. I see that there's been a long history of this person violating you and being abusive to you. What, what can I do to help you feel safe in this moment? And in another circumstance with a different person, that might have been exactly how it went down. But instead, the response was, we're going to charge you with assault with a deadly weapon, right? That's an exercise of police discretion that... Um, had very severe consequences for her, you know, and I, and that I imagine in a different household with different uh, people involved might have gone very differently. And so um, even in the case where police officers are enforcing things that like, you know, theft or, or assault or, or violent uh, offenses, the ways in which they perceive um, poverty, self-defense, mistakes, um, etc., um, has a lot to do with the way they exercise their discretion and, and who gets a pass, who gets a break, who gets a warning, who gets perceived as a victim in need of assistance, who gets perceived as um, someone who legitimately made a mistake, uh, who gets perceived as someone who, even if they did something intentionally, maybe doesn't deserve criminal punishment. That's all a matter of discretion. And that discretion is, is exercised in very racially discriminatory ways. So I think that even when responding to things that maybe most people would agree should be crimes, there are differential responses depending on who 
does it, I think, for a long time, for instance, around bouncing checks, which is a concept I have difficulty explaining to people who've never <laughs> been, um, you know, written checks or had checkbooks. But, you know, for a long time, check fraud was something that was almost exclusively enforced against Black women trying to kind of make ends meet for their families and not against, you know, suburban housewives who bounce checks also with some regularity, you know, but who happen to be white. But only some people were criminalized for it and other folks just sort of got a slap on the wrist or maybe a stern letter from the people who um, you wrote your check to, or maybe they wouldn't cash your checks again in the future. But for some people that became a crime and that was about the discretion of both the store and the police officers who responded to their calls, for instance. Yeah. You know, can we talk a bit about policing policing motherhood, right? Which is a particularly hard one for me to talk about um, in the ways that women of color are treated. So uh, you, you talk about a case of a grandmother who I think a neighbor may have called Child Protective Services and the perception of women of color and their, their parenting, right? So in what ways does this treatment of Black women and women of color differ um, in relation to, to motherhood? I think there's just been a consistent, again, sort of going back to sort of the narratives about Black women, for instance, that were constructed during slavery or the narratives about indigenous women that were constructed during the theft of this land and genocide of its peoples or the narratives of women of color that were constructed in order to justify letting some women in but not others as immigrants to the country. Those narratives persist in how police and child welfare workers perceive mothers and motherhood and what are appropriate responses to everything from, I had to go to a job interview, uh, my childcare fell apart at the last minute, I know this job is necessary for me to be able to support my kids and, and, and create a better life for them. So I'm going to have them sit in the food court where I can see them the entire time I'm doing my job interview. And I'm going to go into this job interview for 15, 20 minutes where I can watch them while I'm doing it, but try and get this job. That's going to be perceived for a black woman as an instance of criminal neglect and abuse of her children, where um, I remember around the same time as that story happened, a white man left a child in a car at a commuter train station because he had just forgotten the child was in the car and got on the train and was on the train for 30 minutes before anyone discovered the kid abandoned in the car. One resulted in criminal charges, 20 years probation, and a whole child welfare case that, you know, required supervised visitation and, and a lot of work on the part of the mother to get her children back. Um, and the other had no consequences for the parent, right? And, and that's, again, the way in which discretion and criminalization of Black mothers in womanhood or women and mothers of color plays out in terms of how police respond to certain situations. And that's, again, that's in sort of narratives that were constructed during slavery that Black women must not care about their children. And that was a way of justifying selling their children away from them, right? Or forcing them to go back to work in the fields yeah. just seconds after giving birth and not being able to tend to their newborns. And then their newborns, you know, having high rates of infant mortality and then saying, oh, that's because Black women are bad mothers. No, it's because they're black, their mothers living in slavery, right? And so yeah. uh, children yeah. living in slavery. So um, similarly now, I think there's a lot of Black women in with contact with the child welfare system who feel like this is still very much like slavery, that their children are being taken from them uh, for things that are about the conditions under which they're being forced to raise them, not about their their inherent mothering ability or care. And at the same time, while Black women are being criminalized for any perceived 
and often not actual harm to their child. Police officers commit harm to pregnant people and mothers in front of their children with impunity or arrest women and leave children alone when the mothers who are being arrested are their primary caregivers without any care or accountability. And and so in many ways, you know, criminalize Black women on the one hand for perceived neglect and abuse of children and then commit abuse of pregnant people, children, and, and commit neglect of children also with impunity. Yeah, and there's a connection with the use of tasers, right, with pregnant women. I mean, that's a that's a, a problem across the board where, you know, tasers are supposed to be a substitute for lethal force, but in fact, yeah. they're routinely used, you know, in situations that do not require lethal force at all and are basically about compliance or punishing what's perceived by officers as defiance. And in one research study I did, over half of police departments I studied had no policy in place specifically dictating what kinds of force police officers could use against pregnant people or not. And those that did might say, "Mm, they might discourage using a taser, but they didn't prohibit it outright. And so there is, unfortunately, a number of cases chronicled in the book of police officers using tasers against pregnant people. And in some cases that can I mean, the children are born healthy, thank goodness, but the worry and, and fear that that creates for women is during their pregnancy is is significant. And in, in other cases, women have lost pregnancies and believe that the taser had at least something to do with it. But when we talk about, you know, use of force policies in this country and the need to change them or adjust them or whatever, we're not actually talking ever about use of force against pregnant people and beyond tasers, right? You know, should police officers be able to take pregnant women down to the ground face down? I mean, I mean, there's many instances right. where that happens and can be very harmful. Even rear handcuffing pregnant people can be harmful because of the way your center of gravity shifts when you're pregnant. And that makes you more likely to fall, but also makes it more difficult to breathe sometimes. So there's just a, a whole area of, you know, what police officers should or shouldn't be able to do to pregnant people that it doesn't even cross people's minds when they're thinking about use of force policies or, you know, use of force continuums or whether the use of a taser is appropriate or not, et cetera. Yeah. And then there's the intersection with immigration. I think there's one case that you recall where a Chinese woman miscarried twins after she went in for it's just a routine meeting regarding her immigration status, right? So there was a, a violent deportation attempt. And I think that you were telling the book that the the officers claimed that they didn't want her, her children, her babies to be born in the U.S. Yes, there's definitely an intersection with immigration enforcement. I think there's been a fair amount of conversation lately about pregnant people in ICE detention and lack of access both to reproductive health care, basic health care, basic nutrition, and certainly abortion services if folks need it. And then all those concerns apply with equal force in, in police custody. And there's a number of just horrible stories where women have either been picked up by border patrol or by police. And one case where a woman gave birth, but then wasn't allowed to breastfeed and had many health consequences herself because of that. And then of course, you know, breastfeeding or at least getting breast milk shortly after birth is recommended, right, for babies. And and so there was a harm to the child in not receiving that. But there is this way in which immigrant women and their pregnancy and childbearing are framed and perceived as a threat and therefore not certainly worthy of care, attention, and support when immigrant women come into contact with police or in police detention. And that plays out both in terms of use of force, but also in terms of the conditions of detention, whether it's in a police holding cell, jail, or immigration detention center. So why do you think it's important to address police interaction with women of color separately from the larger movement, right? You know, all the problematic ways in which people of color generally come into contact with law enforcement. There are many reasons why 
it's really important to look at issues of policing, criminalization, and immigration enforcement through the lens of the experiences of Black women, Indigenous women, and women of color. The first, of course, is that Black women, Indigenous women, and women of color matter. And our experiences of policing matter, and our experiences of police violence matter, and our lives matter. Also, it gives us more information about what criminalization looks like, what white supremacy looks like, what anti-Black racism looks like, and the role that police officers play in enforcing that in many, many, many different settings. And I think that takes us more quickly to questioning whether the way that we're currently constructing safety in our society is actually constructing safety for Black women and girls, like a 14-year-old at a pool party or a girl in her classroom taking out her cell phone or a five-year-old throwing a temper tantrum or a woman who experiences domestic violence and gets arrested herself instead or, you know, a DeCynthia Clements who, in a crisis, is shot by police officers who are supposedly there to help her. And it really requires us to rethink what our approach is to safety and what should be a crime, as you said earlier, what shouldn't be a crime, how much discretion police officers should have, but then also what would actually create and produce safety for Black women, women of color, Indigenous women, immigrant women, women with disabilities, young women, um, and so forth. That's what I really want readers to leave the book thinking about is this is clearly not working. If I'm about police reform, then let me make sure that if I'm going to be trying to change a use of force policy, I'm going to be looking at how use of force is used against women and in what settings and why and what happens when people are pregnant, et cetera. But also, am I thinking about other ways that we could be responding to social issues that would produce more safety for Black women of color? So, DeCynthia Clements was one of many Black women who were killed when they're in a mental health crisis. Up to half of people who are killed by police are or are perceived to be in a mental health crisis at the time that they're killed. If we just found a different way to respond to people in mental health crisis that didn't involve armed police officers or armed anyone, um, but involved care, support, attention, de-escalation, and figuring out a way to a healthier place and healing, then we would cut the number of police killings in half. So let's start there. Let's start from what will make Black women safe. And I guarantee you, we'll figure out situations that will then, and methods of producing safety that will actually make everyone safer. And so that's what I hope people will leave the book thinking about and thinking about what their personal role can be in that process, both whether it's about how they deal with their neighbor when their neighbor's music is too loud or how they respond to a Black mother who they think might not be doing something that they think is appropriate and and how they might respond in ways that don't involve the criminal legal system and actually involve care and support for Black girls in schools, Black mothers, and Black women generally. Well, Andrea Ritchie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed your book. Thank you so much for taking the time to do it. And thanks so much for your questions. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The Electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>